Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 41, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Now today is going to be another day of working to understand as much as we can of a prophesied future over which we do not have all the details, nor have geopolitical events played out sufficiently yet to help us identify some of the important players that are referred to in John's Apocalypse as kingdoms and kings. Therefore, this lesson is going to get a little challenging and require your focus. But more importantly, we have to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit to help us to gain whatever insight and understanding the Lord wants His followers to have at this point in human history. Now the last time we got no further than the first verse of Revelation chapter 19 that tells us of a huge crowd in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! And this crowd must be the souls of redeemed believers, as opposed to angels. Because in the Bible, large gatherings of angels are called heavenly hosts, not a crowd. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It means praise God. And in this setting of chapter 19 that takes place mostly in heaven, the praise is because God has achieved the goal of the ages, which is to rid his creation of the cause of its corruption, Babylon. Now we spoke last week about how we need to view the term Babylon, for Babylon the Great, or even the Whore of Babylon, as more or less the same entity. But also, just as a car is composed of many distinct and necessary pieces, like an engine and a transmission and a passenger compartment and brakes and so on, that are all carefully integrated in order to create a functioning system, so is Babylon a system. A system composed of several pieces. Babylon is many things. And while Babylon on the one hand must be taken as figurative, symbolizing all that represents an evil world system that opposes God and that oppresses his people. On the other hand, it's also literal, it's real, it's tangible, because every piece or element that together form Babylon will actually physically exist if some or all of it doesn't already exist. That is, in the end times, the Babylon of the end times, there is going to be a secular governmental piece and there is going to be a religious piece. human beings are going to be running it. With the governmental piece there's going to, uh, of it, there's going to be a city, there's going to be a capital, it's going to have buildings and people. This enormous religious institution is going to be wealthy and vibrant and influential and yet Babylon is the product of a spirit of evil and deception that has existed since time immemorial and it has been spawned by Satan himself. So there is this invisible spiritual side to it as well that transcends all of history past, present and future. So let us remember now what we're reading is prophetic. The description in Revelation, 9, uh, Revelation 18 of the destruction of Babylon, that's still future to us. So what we read in chapter 19 
seems to be the reaction in heaven when what happens in chapter 18 finally occurs. Okay? So let's reread all of Revelation chapter 19. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be starting on page 1551. After these things, I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! The victory, the glory, the power of our God. For His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her whoring. He has taken vengeance on her who has the blood of His servants on her hands. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God, sitting on the throne. And they said, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice went out from the throne saying, Praise our God, all of you servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd, like the sound of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder saying hallelujah Adonai God of heaven's armies has begun his reign let us rejoice and be glad let us give him the glory for the time has come for the wedding of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself fine linen bright and clean has been given to her to wear and the angel said to me write how blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he added, these are God's very words. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, don't do that. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who have the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. Next I saw heaven opened, and there before me was a white horse, and sitting on it was the one called Faithful and True, and it is in righteousness that he passes judgment and goes to battle. His eyes were like a fiery flame. On his head were many royal crowns. He had a name written which no one knew but himself. He was wearing a robe that had been soaked in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron. <clears throat> It is he who treads the winepress from which flows the wine of the furious rage of Adonai, God of heaven's armies. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out in a loud voice to all the birds that fly about in mid-heaven, Come! Gather together for the great feast God is giving to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of important men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all kinds of people, free and slave, small and great. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to do battle with the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was taken captive and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the miracles which he had used to deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. The beast and the false prophet were both thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that goes out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The words of verse 2 speak of three attributes of God. Salvation, glory, and power. Now our complete Jewish Bibles use the word victory in place of salvation in Greek, soteria. 
I'm not sure why David Stern chose to make this change, but I think it weakens what is actually said. Soteria speaks of redemption, of deliverance, of salvation. And that is exactly how we ought to take it. These descriptive words tell us of God's inherent attributes. God is salvation. It's His nature. God is glory. It's His nature. God is power. It's His nature. And who could be more aware of this than those who live with God in heaven. W. Barclay commented on this passage and I can do no better than to simply quote him. He says this, Each of these three great attributes of God should awaken its own response in the hearts of men. And these responses taken together constitute real praise. The salvation of God should awaken the gratitude of man. The glory of God should awaken the reverence of man. And the power of God is always exercised in the love of God and should therefore awaken the trust of man. Gratitude, reverence, trust. These are the constituent elements of real praise. So I want to say this slightly differently. The realization that the very substance of God is salvation and glory and power ought to elicit a response from humans consisting of gratitude, reverence, and trust towards Him. If that is not our response, then I think it's fair to wonder if belief in God and His Son is real and sincere. Now, I don't say this as a means for us to judge others, but rather as a means for us to honestly examine ourselves. And now that God's intrinsic attributes have been listed, that can leave no question as to why it is said that his judgments are described as true and just. See, this is a great place to pause and define some terms. We should not take the term judgments as used here in the same sense of the 21 judgments of wrath that the Lord has sent upon the earth and wicked humankind. Rather, here it is meant in the sense of the ability to make a considered decision. It's a neutral term. So, for instance, God could make a considered decision, a judgment, that's positive and it's in your favor. As believers, we are judged, just as are the wicked. But God's promised judgment upon believers is that we are innocent. And we are worthy of mercy because of our trust in Christ. However, when God made his considered decision about Babylon, he determined that she proved herself to be guilty. And her crimes allow for no redemption. And therefore, Babylon is worthy only of complete and eternal annihilation. Now, because of his perfection and righteousness then God's judgments for or against can rightly be said to be true and just. So now let's talk about what is just and what just means.
because God's judgments for or against operate within His established justice system, given to mankind in the form of the law of Moses, then when God stays within those same parameters, His verdicts can said to be just. That is, God's judgments are not serendipitous, they're not circumstantial, they're based on precedent and principle that he established long ago. One basic principle of God's justice system is substitutionary atonement. That is, an innocent victim dies in place of the guilty person. Okay which is demonstrated in the Levitical system of animal sacrifice and is then exemplified in Christ's death on the cross. This means that it is just within God's ordained legal system for sinners who sincerely repent and trust in what God has provided for them, atonement through Yeshua, to be granted forgiveness for their sins, for our sins, to obtain eternal life with Him. But at the same time, another basic principle of God's ordained legal system calls for the death penalty for harlotry, adultery, and idolatry. And it is demonstrated with actual executions of the guilty parties with no atonement available for them as prescribed in the law of Moses but is now exemplified in Revelation in the destruction of Babylon whose inherent attributes are harlotry, adultery and idolatry. Therefore no atonement, no forgiveness is available for Babylon's sins. And this is also just because this consequence is clearly established within God's ordained legal system. Now, what I just said can rub many Christians the wrong way. There is specific biblical reasoning behind how and why God judges as he does. However, it gets obscured in modern Christianity because of this red herring accusation of legalism that gets hurled towards those followers of God who understand that he has a legal system that's very well defined in the Torah. We, as His created, are commanded to operate within that legal system. And, with a couple of caveats, God also operates within that same legal system when it comes to His judgments of human beings. Essentially, the great crowd in heaven is acknowledging this reality and they are praising the Father for acting upon it. Therefore, starting in the next sentence of verse 2, God has made and handed down His considered decision concerning the great harlot, the whore of Babylon who corrupted everything God has created on earth. And the considered decision, the judgment, is that vengeance shall be taken against her because in her corruption and wickedness she has not only seduced the majority of mankind to the dark side she is responsible for the deaths of so many of those who she was not able to corrupt those who retained their loyalty to God at any cost a cost that resulted in millions of unjustified deaths. 
So after another hallelujah, the vast crowd in heaven praises God for justly exacting his vengeance against Babylon. As verse 3 says, her smoke goes up forever and ever. Forever and ever, of course, means eternally. Her smoke means her permanent ruination. Now in verse 4, we see the 24 elders and the four living beings also fall down and worship to the Father. Now, these are the beings in heaven that are allowed into the closest proximity to God. The highest privilege for any being that God has created. The 24 elders, I am convinced, are the souls of redeemed Levites, or perhaps they are the heavenly precursor of Levites on earth. Since in the earlier chapters we read of them playing harps, handling golden bowls, and all this is part of standard temple duty for Levites on earth. The four living beings seem to hold perhaps the absolute highest status and position of any created being. They are said to surround and God, guard God's throne and even travel with Him. So the meaning is that the highest of the highest of all created beings also praise God for His act of justice against Babylon. All of heaven is in agreement. Therefore, all of God's people on earth ought to be in agreement with God's judgments as well. Now from a 30,000 foot view, agreeing with God's judgments isn't only as it regards Babylon. All who call God Lord ought to agree with His judgments and His will all of the time. Our personal perceptions of mercy, vengeance, love, justice, these will become clouded by societal norms, by peer pressures, by our own desires over time. So our personal perceptions are to be remolded and remade into that of God's commandments as we grow and we mature. And the primary source of learning and wisdom to change our perceptions comes from God's Word, the Holy Bible. Therefore, verse 5, verse 5 is directed towards humans living on earth. And it is that if, major if, we are truly God's servants, and if we truly fear Him, meaning we have complete loyalty to Him, then we are to join in the heavenly praise over the destruction of Babylon as a sign of our agreement. It's not unlike our utterance of Amen after a prayer. Now for many believers who will be alive at that time, it is going to require not only being loyal to God, but also having the correct knowledge and doctrine ingrained in us so that we will be able to praise God as the entire world economic system collapses and our lives become more precarious. When Babylon is destroyed, life is going to become unbelievably difficult and insecure for everyone on this planet, without exception. And I also suspect that believers are going to become targets for the wicked because we will be praising what the world hates, what the world resents. 
I contend that the dominant religious institution of that day, no doubt being led by the false prophet, the land beast, surely will not be praising God at the demise of Babylon, even though this dominant church institution will be full of people who insist they are Christians, assuming they have not come out of her, as God has begged his true followers to do. In reality, this worldly church of deceived people will have long ago sold out to Babylon. And the leadership will have taught the people wrongly. So they're going to believe wrongly. The result is that what they believe will not be the kind of required salvation belief for God to grant them mercy and redemption, nor will they recognize God's hand in the current events. So these are going to be the ones who hear from Yeshua the most devastating words written in the Bible. They were spoken in Matthew 7.23. Christ says, Then I will tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Can you imagine being a believer, convinced you're a believer, and hearing that from Christ? Verse 6 speaks of another roar of a crowd, one even greater than the first. And this roar has the sound of rushing waters, even a little bit like thunder. It's so loud. Now, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, or to another great falls system like Iguazu Falls in Brazil, the sound is more than deafening. You can physically feel the pounding of the waters in your body. This is what John is describing. This next praise again begins with the most glorious hallelujah yet. And following that, something gets said that needs some extensive explanation. It says, Adonai, God of heaven's armies, has begun his reign. Now this sounds simple enough. But there's more to it than a casual reading reveals. First of all, the complete Jewish Bible has taken some liberties with this verse and inserts a thought that is not there. There is nothing in the Greek that refers to heaven's armies. Rather, it translates better as simply, the Lord God Almighty reigns. But second of all, this short proclamation that seems so simple begs the question, what has suddenly changed other than Babylon has been destroyed? Didn't God always reign from on high? I mean, how can it be said that only now, after Babylon's destruction, that God's reign begins? See, this reign is referring to the everlasting kingdom that's now fully established. It is here, right here, that we could reasonably say the millennial kingdom is now inaugurated. But there's more. This everlasting kingdom of God is spoken about in several places in the Bible. But none is more pertinent, none is more connected to Revelation and to John's visions than Daniel chapter 2. In this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a troubling dream. And Daniel is brought in to, to interpret it for him. Here is the relevant passage in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 45. 
Your Majesty had a vision of a statue, very large, extremely bright, and it stood in front of you and its appearance was terrifying. And the head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its trunk and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. Now as you watched, a stone separated itself without any human hand, and it struck the statue on its feet made of bronze, uh, excuse me, its feet made of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces, which became like the, 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 the chafe on a threshing floor in summer. The wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone which had struck the statue grew into a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. This is what you dreamt. Now we will give the king its interpretation. Your majesty, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory, so that whatever people, wild animals, or birds in the air live, he has handed them over to you and enabled you to rule them all. You are the head of gold. But after you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole world. And then a fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron. Iron can break anything into pieces, pulverize it, crush it. So just as iron can crush anything, this kingdom will break the other kingdoms into pieces and crush them. Now finally you saw the feet and the toes made partly of pottery clay and partly, partly of iron. This will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the firmness of iron since you saw the iron mixed with the clay from the ground. Now just as the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. That means that they will cement their alliances by intermarriages, but they won't stick together any more than iron blends with clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever like the stone you saw, which, without human hands, separated itself from the mountain and broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has revealed to the king what will come about in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is reliable. So, there's several important pieces of information here that may help us to understand some difficult verses in Revelation. The first thing to notice is that the four kingdoms, of the four kingdoms rather, that Daniel speaks about, the first one is the current kingdom of Babylon where Judah's been exiled. That's where Daniel is residing, Nebuchadnezzar's king over it. This is logical, since verse 39 makes it clear that this vision statue is about the future and it's not about the past. It's not a history lesson for the king of Babylon. It is a prophecy of what's to come. It is often thought among biblical scholars that this vision statue has a direct connection to the seven heads of John's revelation beast. Because John says that the seven heads are seven mountains and biblically mountains are figurative of governments and kingdoms. Daniel, however, only mentions four kingdoms. Four. He does not mention seven. So whatever the connection is with Revelations, Daniel's vision is incomplete when you compare it with John's. That it is incomplete makes sense since what Daniel is reporting happened almost seven centuries 
before John received his vision and much history has transpired between Daniel's era and John's era. So in John's era, more is known. More can be revealed. Now, the four kingdoms of the statue, beginning with the head of gold, are in order Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And each description that Daniel gives is quite accurate as to the, the characteristics of these coming kingdoms. But our focus today is on that fourth kingdom and something curious that happens to it. This fourth kingdom is symbolized as being of iron and it's going to be the most powerful of the four. And it's represented by the legs of the statue. And yet, as we move on down to the feet that are at the bottom of the legs, Daniel says this means that the fourth kingdom will eventually become a divided kingdom. This divided kingdom, he says, is going to have some characteristics and strength of the kingdom of iron, which is Rome, and yet the iron is going to be in chunks. and It's just going to be mixed with clay. Which means that when this division happens, this kingdom is not only divided, it's also unstable. It's not as strong as the united fourth kingdom of solid iron. Now we discussed in an earlier lesson that historically the Roman Empire was indeed divided into two. This happened in the third century because the Roman government felt that the size of the empire was just too widespread and unwieldy to be controlled by one emperor from one capital city. So the Roman Empire was divided into eastern and western regions. But nonetheless, they were still both the Roman Empire. This geopolitical division occurred when the strong legs of iron of Nebuchadnezzar's vision statue evolved into the much weaker iron and clay feet. And sure enough, in the 5th century, the western portion of the Roman Empire, ruled from Rome, collapsed. And it was conquered. However, the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, ruled from the capital city of Byzantium, today that's Istanbul, Turkey, lived on for almost another nine centuries until it too collapsed and it was conquered by the Ottoman Turks, an Islamic empire. So Nebuchadnezzar's statue and Daniel's interpretation of it has proved to be accurate according to recorded history. But now we arrive at a difficult conundrum to deal with that bears great similarities to a similar conundrum we found back in Revelation 17 regarding the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. Verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2. We just read this. says this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break to pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. The conundrum begins with the words, in the days of those kings. What kings? Which kings are being referred to? Nebuchadnezzar's vision statue and Daniel's interpretation of it speak of kingdoms not kings. Each of these kingdoms had several kings over them over time. Some might say that Daniel's prophecy then refers to any and all kings 
of those four kingdoms. However, the scriptural context of verse 44 is that in the days, pay attention to this, in the days of those kings, God of heaven is going to establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now clearly, this is referring to the kingdom of God. And about the earliest that we could stretch the beginning of God's kingdom on earth, His eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed, is upon the birth of Yeshua in the first century during the rule of Rome. Not before that. Now remember, the Roman Empire is the fourth kingdom represented by the legs of iron. So how are we to integrate what is being said about those kings? Something doesn't add up. There is mystery going on here that's difficult to process. Now interestingly, in Revelation 17, and I think this is a direct connection, by the way, to Daniel chapter 2, we read in verse 9 this confusing statement. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman is sitting, but they are also seven kings. Or alternately, as found in other Bible versions, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. There they are seven kings versus there are seven kings. So does this mean that the seven heads are both kingdoms and kings? Or does it mean that the seven heads symbolize seven kingdoms but as a separate matter there's also going to be seven kings? My point's this. I know this stuff. Hang in there. Daniel suddenly jumps from kingdoms to kings in his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, just as John, in his vision of the seven heads of the beast, jumps from kingdoms to kings. And yet, when we look carefully at the wording of those passages in both books, the kingdoms aren't necessarily said to line up with certain kings. There are kingdoms and there are kings. But perhaps it is not that we're supposed to be trying to pair a king to a kingdom. Either in Daniel or in Revelation. Maybe it is only that these seven kingdoms have their role in history. But so do seven kings have their roles in history. But the timelines of the kingdoms and the kings don't necessarily line up, nor do they have to. Although it's been a rather standard assumption among Bible commentators that they must line up in some way, like the tumblers of a combination lock. So I want to remind you why we took this brief whirlwind tour of Daniel 2. It's because of the statement... In Revelation 19.6, that only now, after Babylon's demise, that God begins to rule over his kingdom. We can understand and agree that God's kingdom was inaugurated with the birth of Christ. The Gospels, as one might expect, deal with this exact issue on a number of occasions and it leaves little room for debate. Listen to this. Mark 1.15 The time has come. God's kingdom is near. Turn to God from your sins and believe the good news. Luke 17, 20 and 21 The Pharisees asked Yeshua when the kingdom of God would come. The kingdom of God, he answered, does not come with visible signs nor will people be able to say, look, here it is or over there because you see the kingdom of God is now among you. Luke 11:20 20. 
But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now there's many more similar passages I could quote. But this ought to be sufficient to establish the premise that Yeshua's advent, not before, marked the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth. So, in reference now to Daniel 2, then perhaps we need to understand that the symbolism of the rock cut from the mountain that smashes this series of four kingdoms to dust plus the strange evolution of the fourth kingdom of iron into two kingdoms that together are weaker than, from, than, than the one from whence they came, it is to give us an illustration of what Daniel is communicating in Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not pass into the hands of another people. It will break into pieces and consume all those kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. How does this rock, likely referring to Christ, break to pieces and consume all of those four kingdoms of Daniel if at least three are in history past in relation to when Christ appears. You with me? Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, they're all gone. The only kingdom in existence when Christ appears is what? Rome. In fact, each successive kingdom conquered the one before it. It is because Babylon is representative of them all. All of them. All of these kingdoms bear the common trait that they oppose God in one way or another. Further, John's revelation vision that's much more complete than Daniel's vision not Daniel's vision but Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision says that by John's era which is basically the same era we can say as Christ's era roughly the sixth kingdom or empire was ruling by John's calculation remember what he said Five have fallen, one is living now, says John in Revelation 17.10. And since it was the Roman Empire living and ruling in John's day, it means that it was only during the time of the unified Roman Empire, which was Daniel's fourth kingdom, the legs of iron, which is the same as John's sixth kingdom, that the kingdom of God was inaugurated on earth. Now this to me is further proof that we need not attach specific kings to specific kingdoms. Or try to extend that to mean certain popes as some Christian in times doctrines do. But rather we're learning that these seven unnamed kings have roles to play. And seven unnamed kingdoms have roles to play in God's plan of redemption. And while there might be some relationship between the kingdoms and the kings, there may be no direct one-to-one -one connection between a specific king and a specific kingdom. That is, the seven kings are a separate issue from the seven kingdoms. So now we've come full circle. The final kingdom that is going to signal the end of human history is said to be an eighth one. But it's supposed to come out of the seventh one. And the final king, which is an eighth king, that is supported and installed by ten kings who will appear in the end times. Those were represented by the ten, hordes, ten horns of John's beast. 
represents the Antichrist who rules over a kingdom that was not necessarily even established by him. From my perspective, the Antichrist essentially takes over what was previously ruled by Babylon the Great. But what the Antichrist does not realize is that with the demise of Babylon the Great, something he planned, he carried it out by means of those ten kings that are, again, that are the ten horns of the beast, Satan and he are now doomed to failure in a very short time, actually. Further, if the Antichrist and this kingdom he rules over are still in operation by verse 6 of chapter 10, it would seem to be, of chapter 19 rather, it would seem to be premature for all of heaven to shout out, Adonai has begun his reign. So, since I have cautioned all along to be careful not to think that various sections of John's visions necessarily occur in precise sequence, nor are we to assume that unless some set amount of time is said to have passed that each event is happening immediately following the preceding one, then it's my contention that the reason that the voices of the crowd in heaven rise to such a deafening crescendo in verse 6 is because not only is Babylon destroyed and gone, but also the Antichrist, that eighth king, and that final worldly kingdom, the eighth one, that's gone too. So what is being signaled in verse 6 of Revelation 19 can only be the end of Satan's influence of humanity on earth as the prince of the air. And it is the moment of entry into the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign of God on earth. Right there. Or as it's better known, the thousand year reign of Christ when God's kingdom on earth is finally, fully manifested. We will stop here. And next week we will take up the matter of the wedding of the Lamb to his bride.